0: Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 20, recorded on September 24th, 2017. I'm Joe. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Thank you for joining me this week. The boss is away, driving to New York. He's almost there. I saw his uh, rover log. Yeah, sounds
1: like a great trip. I'm a little bit jealous, that's for sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, looks like we have an
0: excellent show today. Yeah, well, let's get straight into it then. So the Librem 5 is is a device that we've been talking about on this show for two weeks already, and now it's going to get a third outing. And this time it's because the Gnome Foundation have officially partnered with Purism, they've given it their official backing. So I don't know whether to think that this is just good publicity or what, but either way, it seems to have bumped up their crowdfunder total that little bit more.
1: Hey, that that's definitely what counts in the end. And from my perspective, I've definitely had a little bit of purism, skepticism in the past. So having more of the technologies they rely on, having the sort of if official endorsement, it, that plus a lot of other changes that I've seen, some of the momentum they've been building recently, and I think their improved transparency of late, all of those have kind of come together. And I'm feeling a lot better about them, uh, you know, as a, as a company and a project.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the Gnome Foundation say they're committed to partnering with Purism to create Hackfest tools, emulators, and build awareness that surround moving Gnome and GTK onto the Librem 5 phone. A little bit nebulous, not not any kind of concrete promises there, yeah. but it's still good that they've got Gnome and KDE. And uh, I spoke to Jonathan Riddle about it, and he said that it's almost like the the early noughties um, KDE Gnome wars all over again hey, that's got to be good. You know,
1: some competition. Maybe they'll both be able to compete here. We'll end up with two awesome stacks on a largely free phone.
0: Yeah. I'm just wondering which way they're going to go in the end. That's actually if it meets its crowdfunding total when it's still like a million dollars away from that. So let's not forget that. Ooh, yeah, that's a very good note. Here's hoping, but that is a lofty goal yeah well it's still a fair way off and the trajectory looks good but i don't want to get too excited yet and i just i'm not willing to take the risk so good luck to him and uh, i keep saying that i hope it happens and then maybe i can buy one afterwards amen so speaking of phones let's talk about replicant so replicant is the totally free software version of android and they've had another release this week. 6.0. Well, they did have a 6.0 out before. So this is just another 6.0 release that's got some security fixes. But most importantly, some new devices. When I say new devices, they're pr- all pretty old devices, unfortunately. And that kind of yes. reflects the situation that you have with Android, that the newer devices are just basically impossible to run totally free software on. Yeah, it's a little disappointing when
1: you read mean, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that this exists. We sort of need that, right? It helps the ecosystem, I think, at least in some ways, even if only in theory. But reading through it, it's a little hard to get excited about when I don't have any any of those devices. I'm not about to go get one, so I just I'm not I'm not going to play with replicant anytime soon, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, the device that seems most attractive to me is the Galaxy S3 because that is still a reasonably good phone. Yeah. And especially if you're
1: running some, you know, open source software, you're not loading the latest giant proprietary app, you could still get some
0: real use out of it. Yeah, so even with Lineage and no Google Apps, you could still get pretty decent performance out of that phone, I think. Oh, that's a great point. With just F-Droid. So this is basically that on steroids if you uh, want free software. They do their very best to make all the drivers free. So yeah, I thought it was worth giving them a shout out anyway. It would be great to see more development and more money go into this because there's just so little free software when it comes to phones we've just accepted that you're going to have all these blobs going on even if you're running lineage like i am there's still going to be a load of proprietary software blobs uh running in the background so you just can't escape it so yeah it's
1: nice to see a little bit more
0: more momentum here good luck to replicant yeah and yet more mobile news ubiports have released ota2 and there's more devices there as well so ubiports is Well, they're still calling it Ubuntu Touch. It's a bit confusing. They don't seem to have their branding quite sorted out yet because, as we know, Shuttleworth pulled the plug on Convergence and Ubuntu Touch and Unity 8 and all that kind of stuff. But the mobile stuff was forked, well, I suppose just carried on, really, by the Ubiports team.
1: Yeah, in the grand tradition of open source.
0: Yeah. And I was a bit skeptical that they would have enough resources to do it, but here we are. They've released two proper releases now. and This one is pretty solid. I tried it out today on a Nexus 5, which is one of the officially supported devices, and it works quite well. I mean, it's basically Ubuntu Touch. It's a little bit more polished than it was when Ubuntu and, well, Canonical killed it. Right. But it's still not ready for mainstream use. But that's the thing that my my whole attitude to it changed. I don't know if that was the same for you. When it stopped being this consumer product and started to be just a community project again, suddenly, my expectations for it were kind of lowered. And I just accepted that, hey, it's a good project. It's got potential. Right. And it has, a, you know, the potential, where it needs to be
1: to be successful kind of changes, right? Like, if it supports some phones, if people can get some use out of it, that's totally successful in the open source world, not as a like mainstream consumer product, though. So I think you're right. Mine, mine has too. And I'm I've tried it on a Nexus 5. Unfortunately, my Nexus 5 is really on its last leg, so I'm in another situation here where I don't have a phone that I can run this on today, but I would love to see it. I've enjoyed using Ubuntu Touch in the past, and certainly I might not use it on my main mobile device, but for projects, for embedded devices,
0: anything that maybe have an old tablet laying around, I would love that to be able to run Ubuntu Touch. Yeah, and so they say, with this release, we're officially supporting the Nexus 4 and Nexus 7 2013 Wi-Fi version. And users of this device will find that they can install Ubuntu Touch 1504 using the UbiPorts installer, which I tried the app image of today, and that worked absolutely brilliantly. Oh, great. So, yeah, I recommend that. They've got an EXE and a DMG if you're uh, on an evil proprietary operating system. And they've got a DEB as well. So there's plenty of ways to install it. And it just makes it so much easier than messing around with the command line. It's just you run this nice, simple GUI and uh, it gets it sorted out. No fast boot, no ADB, just boom, done. Yeah, well, all that stuff's embedded in that, I assume, because it needs to be. Right, it has to be.
1: And that's one of those little things, adds a lot of polish, and, you know, makes it seem like a successful project with momentum. And, hey, maybe you could even get your uh,
0: only little technical friend to play with it. Yeah. And I was actually speaking to Marius Gripsgard, I think it is, uh, in uh, the Late Night Linux uh, Telegram channel yesterday about this. And he basically admitted, if, if that's the word, that he is testing a 16.04 version with Helium oh. on a OnePlus 3. Wow. So that is uh, is coming. Now, it's not anywhere near official at this point. It's very much internally developed and tested. But uh, this this latest release isn't based on Helium, which... Uh, is it Helium? I never know how to say that one. I don't know either. Yeah, which is a project that's kind of bringing together... A lot of the Linux-based OSs, uh, mobile OSs, um, so that's still in the future, but it's it's on the horizon, which is good to see. Yes, I would love, I would love sixteen oh four on my phone. Oh man, yeah, it would be good. It's kind of strange that it's all based on fifteen oh four, which is right.
1: That's a weird base. It's not a you know standard LTS or anything like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, strange. Not supported anymore, and just you know must be a bit of a hack. So there we go. Um, all right, well, let's move on and talk about Pipewire. So, Pipewire is the latest creation from uh, one of the co creators of GStreamer called Vim Tamans or Wim Tamans. I've butchered that, sorry. And it is basically the pulse audio for video. Is that fair to say? You know, it's something like that.
1: What I found really interesting was it's not only going to be for video, this first release is for video, but there's plans to include audio as well. So, uh, it's pulse audio plus video.
0: Yeah, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because one of the major multimedia issues that you have with Linux is syncing of audio and video together. Yes, definitely. And I I think that speaks well of the
1: development here, too. It seems like they understand, you know, they're not just trying to develop the tool that scratches their itch. They really looked holistically at the problem space and they want to build, you know, the next foundation of audiovisual tools on Linux. And that's definitely something we need, especially if we want more developers to be able to target the platform.
0: Yeah, but the thing is that this is not just for audio-visual stuff like video editing and streaming and OBS stuff like JB does all the time. It's also got wider implications, hasn't it, for remote desktops and stuff?
1: Yes, Definitely. It sounds like they've they've done some great work, uh, trying to put in some you know put in some new shims, some build some foundations for the Wayland era that we are fast approaching, so that we have remote desktop capabilities, screenshot capabilities, but in a you know at a foundational level that doesn't have to be
0: a hack implemented in each window manager. The fact is, we are moving to Wayland. There are no two ways about it. Exactly, it's happening, and you can't expect to have things that are based on working with X that are going to work long term so we need to rethink stuff now is the time as we're moving to Wayland to do this I think and calling it Pulse Audio I don't know people have had a lot of bad experiences because that was introduced too early into Fedora Um, and this is going to be in the next version of Fedora so the question is is it going to be ready is it going to be another Pulse Audio gate as it were Here's hoping that it's going to be more ready than Pulse was. Yeah, and it seems like they've, it seems like people have learned a little bit from that mistake,
1: um, and are, you know they're trying to avoid it. This first release looks like it just has video, uh, and audio will be added later, partially because they are worried about that problem. But it does, you know we yeah. we, we had we had Wim on uh, Linux Unplugged two fifteen, based on that. I had a lot of trust for the development models that they're doing, that they really know the problem space well, and that they're not trying to just rush in and be the next big hyped thing in the Linux
0: platform. Yeah, do check out Linux Unplugged, episode 215. And uh, yeah, you can hear more from Wes. <laughs> exactly.
1: And it looks like, uh, you know, if you're an Arch user, or is already packaged in Arch and a few other distributions, so you might be able to just try it at home yourself.
0: digitalocean.com. Sign up with the promo code, here's the thing, to get $10 credit. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. And you can do so in 55 seconds. And with prices starting at only $5 per month, that means you can get two months free if you use the promo code, here's the thing. They've got data centers all over the world, and they've got a great simple interface for dealing with your droplets, as they call them. And they've got a great API as well if you want to script it. Loads of the JB infrastructure runs on DigitalOcean, and I've been using it for years personally. And now, as well as block storage, you can also use object storage with DigitalOcean with their new product, Spaces. From just $5 a month with very reasonable rates on storage and transfer, you can scale the storage that your project needs as desired. And best of all, you get two months free trial with that as well. So whether you want just a small NextCloud server or a hugely powerful Linux rig out in the cloud, go to digitalocean.com, use the promo code, here's the thing, and get $10 in credit to get you started. Well, Joe, I know how much
1: you love proprietary software running on your machine outside of your control. We've got some new developments uh, over on the EFF's website. They've got a new open letter about the recent W3C decisions around encrypted media extensions.
0: And uh, for people who might not know, uh, could you explain encrypted media extensions? Well, to massively oversimplify it, it's a standard in HTML which allows encrypted media, as it would suggest. So DRM is what we're talking about here. So the likes of Netflix can stream stuff to you without you being able to dump it and save it. And this was proposed a few years ago to be added to the uh, W3C standards. And to say there was a bit of a... Controversy here is a bit of an understatement. There's been an argument going on for years. And this week it was officially voted into the standards. Now, at some point there was a suggestion of compromise whereby it would be brought in, but security researchers could still hack on it and try and find vulnerabilities and responsibly disclose them. But that was shot down and is not happening now. Yikes. So, there was a vote of 108 in favor and 57 against, with quite a lot of people abstaining. And the thing is that the W3C is supposed to be about consensus. And that is not exactly a consensus, is it? That's that's democracy, but it's not a consensus. Decidedly not a consensus. And especially when we have, you
1: know, this will have far-ranging implications. And this is about the only real kind of somewhat governance we have for the Wild West of the World Wide Web.
0: Yeah. And so the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, were members of the W3C for quite some time, but that's it. Cory Doctorow has said, we're leaving, I'm resigning, and you can just get on with it, which is really sad because the EFF are a really important organization and for them to basically be forced into leaving over this is not good. I... I wonder if they had to, I suppose they kind of did, but I think that maybe there was a way to work through this and and, you know, vocally, very publicly voice their concerns about it and their distaste about it, but still be within the organization because we need that voice of reason. So it's a real disappointment here. Yeah, it's like at on one hand it,
1: you know, it makes a big fuss. We're obviously talking about it here because of that, but what
0: do we lose in the future by their voice not being on the council? yeah so i mean where do you stand on encrypted meter extensions anyway in drm as a html standard the the idea is that we get away from these plugins and flash and silverlight and everything and you know do you accept are you pragmatic enough to realize that you're going to have drm one way or another i think at the end of the day i am and i do want to be able to
1: watch netflix or other surfaces or still be able to you know Pitch Linux and open source operating systems to friends and family, and they're going to want to do those things, even if I might not want to. I was really, I thought that the compromise that was ultimately rejected was fairly reasonable because we are going to have to interact with these proprietary blobs that are, you know, running, man- managing the DRM. At le- the least thing we can be allowed to do is still introspect, still poke at our system, still have the ownership and control. Otherwise, you know, what, what was ultimately accepted here, it really does start to take away from this open web feeling. And yeah, sure, I downloaded Chrome. I'm running it on my laptop. It's different now. It's not, it's, it's going to be farther away from, from Chromium. And it, I feel less free to use. And it's, you know, it's either my control or their control. I don't feel less in control. You start to sound like Stallman there. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And so that's, I, I definitely have those feelings at
0: the end of the day. This is going to happen, I'm, and I'm certainly
1: going to use it. It's definitely sad,
0: though. Yeah, it's not ideal, but I think it was inevitable, and uh, we just have to deal with it, unfortunately. Yeah, find other ways that we can continue to you know, be free on the web. Yeah. So let's talk about Facebook. What? <laughs> Why are we talking about Facebook? Well, we're talking about React.js. So this is another controversy that has been brewing for a while. So React... And Jest and Flow and Immutable, loads of the um, the modern web developer type frameworks were licensed by Facebook as the BSD plus patents license, which basically meant that if you use the software, you can't sue Facebook even if they infringe on your patents, which is questionable at best. And so. Apache, a few weeks ago, the Apache Foundation, actually back in July, it feels like a few weeks ago. It sure does. (laughs) Where did summer go? But anyway, they said that no new projects can use it, uh, any software that has this um, license. And then more recently, Automatic, who are the developers of WordPress, announced that they are not going to use React in their next major update, which is called Gutenberg. And that also, they were going to rewrite their last one called Calypso. Uh, to not include it. And shortly after that announcement, here we are, Facebook have caved in and they have re-licensed it as just plain old MIT.
1: It's a it's big news, but I think on one hand it's kind of also not big news. The real takeaway I saw from a lot of this discussion is just software patents are a huge existential crisis that the the software world is not really dealing with. And what Facebook did with this kind of non-standard license is make everyone have to start thinking about patents. because right now, now we're in a situation where under MIT, there's there's some legal opinions that MIT includes an implicit patent grant, but they don't it doesn't specify that. So before you had an actual grant of the patents with MIT, it's it's somewhat less clear. Uh, while you don't have this other clause, you know, that takes away some of your rights, you're not sure about the actual patents. The other part that just shows how messed up this whole situation is, is in all the discussions, no one's even sure if there were like patents on some of these things. Do, do they have patents on what the technology underneath react? Nobody knows. It's too hard to tell. There's too many bad patents that exist. I can also somewhat understand Facebook's motivations originally because they do—they put out a lot of open source software. And because of the patent situation, I'm sure they must get all kinds of frivolous lawsuits. And so this was their somewhat heavy-handed attempt to, be, to try to put a stop to that. And I, while that's not ideal, I do value the amount of open source work that they
0: do. They have a large number of developers, and they've given the world a lot of really good software. That's a very pragmatic view, and I haven't really heard that. All I've heard is, for the last few months, just ragging on Facebook saying that they're a terrible company and why they're taking advantage of people like this. So it's interesting to hear the other side of it and uh, a, a more reasonable approach.
1: Yeah, I'm, ho- I'm hopeful that
0: that after this change, even if it's not really changed, it doesn't
1: solve a giant problem. Uh, Even for WordPress, it it sounds like WordPress's decision wasn't even that they were that concerned about the patent part, but that switching to the non-standard license was causing other people to have concerns, and they were worried that that would hurt WordPress adoption. So if we can just get back to a, you know, all right, well, no one's thinking about patents anymore, and people can continue to use React, which I personally, that's my framework of choice for UI work. I think it's a great technology. I'd like to see it continue to, to succeed.
0: Yeah, and Matt Mullenweg. I think that's how you say it, who is uh, the founder of WordPress, has written a blog post a few hours ago that hasn't quite cleared up whether or not they are going to go with it, you know, to change their mind basically back to going with it. But they've they've certainly left the door open with uh, his blog post there. So we'll have to see because my understanding is it is a very popular framework.
1: Yes, very much so. It sort of changed uh, the way people looked at, at frameworks because it, it operates on this diffing mechanism. So instead of having to you know manually update various things, add a new div or something, you just describe what you want it to look like. React handles all the automatic diffing and figures that out for you. So it makes it really simple to work with, very clean UI architectures that you can build. There are some like drop-in compatible. Preact is one, basically API compatible with React. But by going there, you lose out. Like Facebook just has such not only dominance, but just they have such infrastructure and, you know, just sheer number of developer hours. Plus, with the React ecosystem, you get things like uh, React Native. So if you already have, you know, you're a you're a web developer, maybe you don't know how to write uh, Objective-C, but with React Native, maybe you don't have to. That seems like it'd be
0: really lucrative, especially if you work on a small startup or a small team. Well, hopefully people will be less reluctant to use it now. Um, I know people were worried about it, and hopefully this has uh, put that fire out. Exactly. So speaking of patents, then, Red Hat have announced a broad expansion to their open patents promise. And that promise is to not sue you for using any of their patents as long as the software is open source. Now, what has been expanded here is that it's now going to cover permissive licenses. So pretty much anything that is OSI or FSF approved is covered. So the Open Source Initiative and the Free Software Foundation have got these Lists of approved licenses, and it pretty much means any open source license is covered. And they have got over 2,000 software patents, it seems. Red Hat, so it's good to see them extend this promise, and people can sleep that little bit easier at night now, hopefully.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's one of those interesting, we live in such a business dominated world. It's kind of nice. We have good actors like Red Hat here who really, I mean, obviously they make their money. It's good for their business model to support open source. But, you know, when you're a small open source developer, maybe you want to launch your new product or you're just trying to, you know, help and support people in the United States, trying to interact with the patent system, trying to understand that, trying to even just begin. That's a nightmare. You don't have a budget for a lawyer. Um, Red Hat certainly does. So if they can be this bridge between the open source community and the legal community and just make sure that, yes, we are not going to do this. We're setting the standard that if you're doing open source software, we realize you're not like a you're not a business competitor. You're not trying to take advantage of our patents. I imagine there's a lot of people at Red Hat who don't even like all these software patents. But to be defensive in the industry, they have to have them here. They're just on the open
0: source side, which is great. So how much of this is actually going to be a practical benefit to people? And how much is it just a publicity grab by them, you know, trying to improve their image that little bit further? That is a good question. They do definitely want to be seen as this open source friendly company.
1: There is a lot of details here reading through their actual patent promise, you know, uh, covered free and open source software. So it, it seems a lot more clear now whether or not projects are actually even considering this i think there is kind of a put your head in the sand approach to patents a lot of the time where uh, we're just not going to look we're not going to investigate just do it if someone sees us down the road then uh, i guess we deal with it then i don't know how practical this is
0: but if you happen to be using some red hat technology i guess you're in the clear you can check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get the new episodes every week and linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch and you can support the entire network at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash signal We'll be back next Monday when it'll be either me and Chris or me and another guest. We'll just have to see whether he gets back from New York in time. And we'll have our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Joe Ressington. I'm at Wes Payne. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for having me. See you.